Anyone who has visited Mexico can tell you that if you have the opportunity to walk around neighborhoods and the streets of cities, big or small, you will realize very quickly that bread in some shape or form will always be part of the landscape. Like the tempting pastries neatly arranged are corner shops, a basket of sweet and savory breads served with, well, almost any type of breakfast. Tamalero carts in busy corners will happily serve you a tamal to go stuffed in a bolillo, which is a savory bun. A plate of chilaquiles can't be complete without bread to mop clean the sauce. And at humble market eateries or fancy restaurants, steamy cups of chocolate, coffee or atole will always come with delicious pan dulce, meaning yummy pastries. But hundreds of years ago, this wasn't the case, and bread had to creep its way into pre-existing rituals here in Mexico. And over time, that showed a deep syncretism between indigenous and Spanish Catholic practices. Let me give you an example. A good one is the Day of the Dead bread that is shaped into a pile of bones, which is an unmissable item at our altars. And what to say about Rosca de Reyes, which is a sweet bread we eat on Epiphany every January the 6th and is beautifully adorned with dried fruit, sugar paste and fruit jellies to mock jewels. And inside it has a hidden figurine of baby Jesus. Staple as it might be today, bread was once a stranger to these lands, as the dominant cereal ruling our tables, fields and rights was, well, indeed corn. But that changed soon after the Spanish colonization, because on board of transcontinental ships also came hundreds of crops, plants and animals that would change forever our food system and gastronomy. You're listening to episode 74 of Passage Botle. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook and author. And on this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world, championing Mexican food. To find more information about the podcast, subscribe to my newsletter, connect with me on social media, find more about my ebooks, well, go to this show's description on your podcast app to find all the links. many breads of your own country can you name? Mm, let's see, a few Mexican savories. Well, we have birote, bolillo, telera, torta, pan francés, and pastries or pan dulce. Well, let me see, we have cuernitos, conchas, chilindrinas, empanadas, mantecados, donas, chinos, banderillas, campechanas, biscuits, roles, tomates, libras de nata, La pastelada, cocol, pan de queso, mar quesote, cubilete, rebanadas mm, y piedras. <laughs> well, how is that for a sample of the dozens of types of Mexican pastries? As those who are familiar with this show know very well, I love to untangle the overarching stories and relationships between culture, history and gastronomy. And talking about wheat and bread offers the true playground to do this. And because we are not in a hurry, I will take the time to explore from the beginning the whys and hows of the history of bread in Mexico, and particularly the heartland of the country, because that will allow me to tap into the local history of my hometown of Puebla, which has a long-standing reputation for its renowned baking traditions. So this episode will have, as usual, something for everyone. But mostly, it is a love letter to all bread lovers. I hope you enjoy this episode. 
From a historical point of view, we can distinguish four different periods in the history of bread in Mexico, starting with its introduction by the hands of Spaniards, followed by its adaptation and cultivation. Colonial milling and baking gave way to more modern forms of doing exactly the same thing over the centuries. But fast-forwarding a little bit, and we arrive to the modernization of the baking industry and industrial production of bread. And finally, I guess we can say there's a contemporary approach to a new appreciation of artisan baking methods and the, well, gourmetization of bread and pastries, which you can find at exorbitant prices in hipster hotspots. And, well, this is roughly the roadmap that we have ahead today. So, well, how about we start with this story from the beginning And I really mean the actual beginning, which will take us back, well, almost 12,000 years ago, when ancient hunter-gatherers first came in contact with a wild grass called Emma, and its scientific name is Triticum turgidum, which is the remote ancestor of the wheat we know today. Now, there is enough archaeological evidence to suggest that Emma was domesticated in the region between the Persian Gulf and the Black Sea, meaning that this area includes the modern-day countries of Turkey, Syria, Iraq and Iran. You see, the history of complex food systems is also the history of our transition from a nomadic way of life to sedentary societies that were able to evolve into large civilizations. And it all started with the agricultural revolution of the Neolithic period, which is a fancy way to say the Stone Age, when warmer and more favorable weather patterns around the world enabled humans to pursue a new agricultural adventure in which they had to, well, sharpen their observation skills Um, of the life cycle of plants to start the earliest forms of agriculture. And this process is called the domestication of plants, in which humans performed a careful and constant manual selection of seeds and they combined different specimens to preserve, enhance or eliminate certain characteristics, um, such as size, flavor, density and even the color of crops, making very gradual modifications that created new cultivars. Across the world, other ancient societies did the same with the available regional grains that were also very rich in protein and starches like sorghum, millet, rice, corn, rye and barley that together with wheat are the seven primordial crops and Well, the golden ticket to a new future fueled by these cereals that became the base of diets, cuisines and traditions. It is no wonder then why we see across cultures many important myths of origin built around these cereals, which also inspired, in many cases, entire systems of beliefs, agricultural techniques, strategies to register and anticipate weather patterns, and of course, create many preparations, cooking techniques and foods. The popular diet of ancient Rome consisted largely of cereals, durum wheat, which was a precious cultivar, was reserved for the upper classes, and the plebs and just normal city dwellers consumed emma, barley, and the very, very poor had to do with only millet. Now, under the rule of Gaius Octavius, who later became Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor, Many northern African territories were conquered and transformed into imperial provinces. The incorporation of Egypt was particularly important as it became Rome's main supplier of wheat. And I'm telling you this because in Italy today, Emma is called farro, which classicists tell us comes from the way in which ancient Romans called the cereal farro's grain. Because, well... It came from Egypt. 
Emma still exists in its wild natural form and is also farmed, and today it is considered a heritage crop. Going back to Imperial Rome, everyone across the provinces ate bread. Roman legions had panis militaris, and the Roman navy had handsome rations of panis nauticus. But affluent cities like Pompeii and Rome had bakeries where Greek bakers made dozens of different sweet and savory breads. After the fall of the Roman Empire and well into the medieval period, wheat cultivation and bread making became more essential than ever to the European diet, which had, well, little to do with feasting and overindulgence, like some Hollywood films like to depict, because the reality is that most people ate a rather, well, monotonous and a bit harsh and bland diet. So their meals normally consisted on bread, a lot of it, and usually they ate something um, similar to a trencher, which was a semi-flat loaf that was sliced lengthwise and served, well, as an edible plate. And it was downed with, well, ale, of course, or wine if available. And pottages of oatmeal, barley and root vegetables, sometimes foraged plants and meat if they were lucky. Medieval Spain was not much different to the rest of Europe. And agriculture, wine production, brewing, curing meat, making cheeses and other forms of food preservation were common things uh, that people did, but especially religious communities whose income often depended on these activities and the sale of these products. But something that actually did set Spain apart from other European countries was the fact that the Iberian Peninsula was colonized by Arab diasporas controlled by Muslim caliphates for 700 years, between the year 711 to 1492. This Muslim empire was known as Al-Andalus, in which Jewish or Sephardi communities were a key component of the medieval society. And they, well, very much popularized their traditional breads in Spain. Added to this, the Muslim caliphates introduced the cultivation of sugarcane and the production of sugar, which completely changed the Spanish diet. The Jewish and Muslim traditions of using sugar syrups, essences, spices and flavors like orange blossom, cardamom, aniseed and sesame seed dictated the taste, recipes and sweet tooth of Spaniards who became accustomed to eating treats like tishpiti, jala, burecas, babka and bagels. And some popular savory baked goods from the Al-Andalus period are mojabanas, sofpita bread or pan arabe, and almojabanas, which are cheese stuffed buns. Mm. But all things that rise, well, they must fall. And the long Muslim reign in Spain came to an end the same year that Columbus stumbled upon America in 1492. And this meant the end of a long and complex era. Back in Spain, Arab Muslims and Sephardi people were expelled during the Spanish Reconquista, which was followed by a fierce cultural cleanse that tried to erase all memory and legacy of this period. But the truth is that the deep cultural impact of 700 years of colonization was impossible to hide. And while the new Spanish identity was centered around Christianity as a key marker of differentiation, religious beliefs aside, anything else from language to architecture, science, technology, art, and of course, food, were already heavily transformed by the hybrid legacy, one that was carried inside every Spaniard that came to the Americas. And following the defeat of the Mexica Empire in 1592, the colonial project became an even bigger, messier, more complex, but also fascinating chapter in history. Now, let's see what wheat and flour production looked like in the colonial era. 
Now, the main issue with the establishment of a new colony in the so-called New World was that this land, well, it was new and it was pretty much already taken. And there were millions of people living in here that had their own civilizations and complex societies, commerce, science, technology, along with unique languages, food systems and culinary traditions. But of course, well, that didn't stop earnest Spaniards to swiftly take control of these lands, install new authorities and impose their own forms of organizing and controlling the population. But there was one issue that consumed Spaniards during the first decades of the colonial period, and that was introducing, adapting and produce at large scale the crops, farming animals and foods that they were familiar with which came with the added challenge of getting to know and understand the geography, biodiversity and climates of Mesoamerica, different altitudes, terrains and soils. Getting wheat's adaptation right was indeed a top priority, but it proved to be a constant source of frustration and disappointment, and it was incredibly difficult to get it to adapt to other conditions, until they had a go in the valleys of today's cities of Puebla, Atlixco and Huejotzingo, among other nearby areas, where the first reliable, healthy and abundant harvest of wheat was finally achieved. It was indeed a big cause of celebration, but the next challenge well, was to create and rapidly consolidate the whole production chain that only really started with a harvest of wheat. Storing, transporting, milling, baking, distributing and regulating all this process wasn't at all easy because the productivity of the native workforce was limited by the lack of familiarity of indigenous people with this grain. Moreover, there were serious threats to the whole enterprise because people were, well, understandably, deeply unhappy to have had their lands taken, crops destroyed and being forced to farm the food of the invaders. And we have many accounts that say that people wouldn't accept bread even if they were starving. So very quickly, bread became a big part in the great cultural clash between different worlds. But whether they liked it or not, and in spite of the many uprisings, wheat was to be cultivated, grain harvested, flour made, and bread baked. And there was no going back. And by 1587, in less than 60 years since Puebla's foundation, this province had become the granary of New Spain, and the quality of the wheat produced made it the main supplier of this grain, along with flour and bread. In fact, its economy also included exporting regular shipments of sea biscuits, flour and grain to the ports of Veracruz, Yucatán, Puerto Rico, garrisons in Florida, Havana's fortresses, Santo Domingo and the Antilles, among other destinations. Puebla also supplied prisons, uh, regiments and vice-regal fleets that were stationed in Acapulco. As you can imagine, this meant a clockwork coordination between grain producers, mill owners, granaries, bakeries and transport convoys. The city's role in securing this precious supply in New Spain for other nearby metropolis meant that they had to regularly ship grain, flour and bread to the city of Mexico which, unlike other urban centers, wasn't self-sufficient and had to rely heavily on sourcing food from other regions. In fact, this is a problem that not only never changed, it actually only got worse over time. And to this day, the city of Mexico depends almost entirely on produce, meat and other foodstuffs that come from afar. Meanwhile, the bread industry in Puebla was so important that at some point became one of the fastest growing sectors that brought many opportunities for wealthy Spaniards, turning large extensions of land into prosperous wheat fields. And by 1794, powered by the rivers that surrounded the city, 14 wheat mills had been built to supply the growing numbers of bakeries with fresh flour. 
and to organize the colonial workforce, many guiles were established together with ordinances that provided the legal framework for the operation of commercial, agricultural and manufacturing enterprises, among other forms of economic activities. And what did this mean for bakers and bakeries? It is a bit frustrating that in classic historical studies there has been little attention to exploring in detail everyday life, which meant that food was well largely relegated to a matter of little importance. And it's fairly recent that Mexican historians and anthropologists, among other specialists, have just started untangling these little explored stories. The Municipal Historical Archive of Puebla is a very important source of information, particularly the documents related to bakeries and bakers' licenses. These magnificent files are a window into a fascinating period, and from them we can obtain key information that helps us understand the colonial society, economy, diet and organization. Now, there is a curious linguistic distinction when we talk about bakeries in Mexico. Because back in the colonial period, there wasn't a distinction between bakery and patisserie, meaning that just the generic word panaderia, bakery, was a place where savory bread and pastries were made. Our modern-day panaderias have maintained this neutrality, and you can walk in and out with a bounty of sweet and savory treats. Now, back in the colonial period, bakeries functioned in a slightly different way to their modern-day counterparts. Well, the place where bread was produced was indeed called a panaderia, where the amasijo, or kneading and leavening, took place. Actual bakers were simply the workforce of these places, often forced to labor for up to 20-hour shifts, which honestly sounds almost impossible, but hey... Such are the historical accounts. They were often underpaid and subject to poor working conditions and abuse. The actual owners of the bakeries didn't have to be bakers themselves, and in fact, they seldom were. We also find that the produced bread was never sold straight from the bakery, and by law it had to be taken to a different shop or a stall at local markets, and the price was fixed by the municipal authorities. And depending on the variety of bread, different rules applied. Those of higher quality were sold by weight. Typically, it was a single loaf, and those made with inferior grains and flours were cheaper and often sold by piece. In fact, there was such a big obsession about the regulations around bread making and prices that the city of Puebla's Fiel Ejecutoria, or tribunal, constantly monitors the quality, quantity and prices of grains, flour and bread. And they took very punitive measures against those who broke the law. The Baker's Guide followed pretty much the same model as former medieval trade organizations providing structure to the operation of bakeries and their workers, which included young apprentices, usually boys as young as 8 or 10 years old, that joined workshops to learn the trade. They were expected to live with their masters or mentors and had a rather vulnerable position as they were well, working the same working hours as the rest of the employees but received no payment. And while, yes, they had lodgings, clothing and food, they actually had to work to pay for these quote-unquote privileges. Once they have completed their formative years, they became officials and In time, that would allow them to apply to hold their own license as master bakers, who were the ones in charge of overviewing the whole operation, but still took part in the process. Now, because, well, there is a limited access to historical archives and there's only a handful of works that are exclusively focused on colonial bakeries, there's still a lot to continue exploring about the fine details of what went into these spaces and the social dynamics around them, including the role and participation of women in the food economy. I have found very interesting evidence that, in fact, shows that it was 
kind of fairly common for women to inherit their husbands' businesses after their passing. And even some women were business owners in their own right, even after getting married. Let me give you an example of my findings. In Puebla's historical archive, I came across six widows that were business owners. Three had sugarcane mills and three owned textile factories. Of the ten bakeries owned by women in colonial Puebla, eight of them were widows. One was married and one we don't know. There's no information about her. And last, I found eight more widows that owned uh, charcuteries. Another little explored aspect of the social history of colonial Mexico is the racial diversity of the society, which is often assumed to be biracial, meaning only including native indigenous people and Spanish. But the truth is that New Spain was a diverse and dynamic territory that was connected to a global network of maritime transcontinental commerce that attracted the attention of wealthy people looking to increase their fortunes, adventurers, and other people who wanted to build a new life. And of course, there were large numbers of individuals who came and went on board of merchant vessels. Now, I think it's very important to mention that there were other vulnerable minorities present in New Spain, like Spanish Arabs and Sephardi or Jewish Spaniards, who had a particularly complex history and a troubling relationship with Catholic Spaniards ever since the expulsion and Reconquista in 1592, which I mentioned earlier. And it's equally necessary to address the large number of enslaved men and women from Africa and Asia. From Asia specifically, they mostly came from the Philippines and occasionally from India and China, who also became part of the colonial society. All of these groups had to overcome different types of obstacles and endure abuses that were often much worse than those suffered by the native indigenous population. Jewish, Muslim and Africans were often excluded from applying for a working license or joining guiles and owning workshops. But, this is the interesting bit, bakery owners had to leave their prejudices aside if they wanted to benefit from lucrative contracts to supply bread to the Caribbean, nearby cities and even South America. And they really had no choice but to hire mulatto, Asian and more often than not, very skilled Jewish bakers who brought in an amazing revolution of flavors and recipes that became loved staples of the poblano population. I will circle back to this aspect later on, but for now I want to tell you about a particularly interesting strategy to ensure the quality of the bread produced in the city and the regulations imposed by the authorities. So the context in which these regulations came into existence are the so-called Bourbon reforms, named after the Spanish Bourbon king Philip V, who ruled between 1700 and 1746, who sought to reform and renovate the Spanish Empire, introducing policy changes that attempt to stop piracy and contraband, regain control over transatlantic trade, modernize state finances and establish tighter political and administrative control within the empire. For poblano bakers, this meant a new system to apply and renew operation licenses, which included the creation of a unique design, a personal bread stamp, known in Spanish as pintadera. The purpose of this was to brand the most expensive and refined loaves, made with blanched and extra refined flowers, and since bread wasn't sold within the premises of bakeries, but at public markets and shops, authorities had to be able to trace back the bakers by looking at each individual bread stamp. At the historical archive of Puebla, 
The dossier of bakeries and bakers contains dozens of handwritten licenses that include prints of these stunning designs that accompany the name of the baker in question and a pledge by which they declare to follow and keep the regulations and laws for bread making. I was fortunate enough to have photographed dozens of these bread stamps featuring anagrams, religious motifs, animals like deer, eagles and even dragons. But instead of trying to describe them for you, why don't you take a look at the YouTube version of this episode in which I have added a whole bunch of these amazing designs that will blow your mind. Just search for Paz de Chipotle podcast on YouTube or go to the notes of this episode to find the link. Now, I imagine that by now you want to hear more about the types of bread made in those colonial bakeries. And I won't keep you waiting. While the information is somehow scattered, there are many mentions about the names, qualities and characteristics of the most popular savory breads that were baked. And this has to do less with the history of bread making in Mexico and more about economic, agricultural and legal history. But the important thing is that this information exists and Yes, it has taken decades of detailed research to untangle the story of bakeries. And we owe much to the hard work and pioneering research of anthropologist and historian uh, Virginia Garcia Acosta, from whom we know that the quality and types of bread throughout the 1700s was strictly regulated. And there were five main types of bread. Top of the list, we have pan especial or special bread, and it was exclusively made with extra refined flour made out of a very popular variety of wheat called candeal. The texture of the crumb is said to have been very soft and, well, due to the high cost of the ingredients and skills required to execute these recipes, the production was rather small. And by the end of the 1700s, the city of Mexico only had to bakeries left that made special bread and these loaves were made for the very exclusive tables of the city's archbishop and the viceroy himself. Second class bread was simply called bloomer or pan floreado and this was fairly common while still being exclusive and it was produced pretty much at all bakeries. It was made with high quality and refined flour and had to be shaped in a special way. These were round loaves or buns that distinguished them from other shapes and other qualities. Third class bread, known as common bread or pan común, was made by old bakeries. And these breads were sold by peas. And the flour was made with a mix of grains, which often included leftovers from other batches. And my guess, based on some descriptions that I found, is that these breads were very similar to bolillos um, that were just simply divided into two sections or maybe sometimes in three sections, sometimes scored. And I have found another description that said that it had the shape of a bonete cortado, which means like a sliced bun. Fourth class bread. Now, <laughs> we are really going down the colonial ideas and prejudices about refinement, taste and the habits of different classes. We find pan bajo uh, was written with an X. Over time, pan bajo simply became pan basso, as it often happens with words that change over time. These breads were made with really, really leftover and discarded ingredients, including weevil-riddled flour. And this was really just a way for bakers to profiteer from the need of working class people to buy any type of bread to feed their families. And last, in the city of Puebla, we find a type of bread called semita or asemita. 
And this is a reference to a very well-known type of bread that was very popular in medieval Spain and was part of the culinary legacy of the Jewish population that lived there. This delicious bread has a crunchy crust and is topped with sesame seeds. It is made with a mix of bran and wholemeal flours. What's really interesting here is having a look at the self-fulfilling prophecy of lower-class staples throughout gastronomic history. The food of the masses, hearty and affordable, unpretentious and popular, that actually survived the test of time, fashion and cultural changes. You see, French bread and bloomers may have been the favorite bread of the landed gentry, wealthy merchants, rich bureaucrats and high-ranking clergy. But that didn't stop them from going extinct. However, working-class breads like crusty bolillos, teleras and tortas, pambaso and semitas, which changed spelling now with a C, never went away. In fact, the history of semitas took a surprising turn as they became one of the most loved traditional meals to which, well, the word Sandwich utterly fails to describe the epic glory of this multi-layered leviathan of a stuffed bun. <laughs> and I know it sounds over the top, but wait until you see the photos on YouTube and Instagram. Towards the end of the Spanish rule, Alexander von Humboldt, the famous Prussian scientist, naturalist and traveler, made a most ambitious voyage to the Americas, exploring several Spanish territories in the Caribbean, South America, and of course in the north he visited Mexico, which was still known as New Spain, where he stayed from 1803 to 1804. After his travels and returned to Europe, Humboldt personally financed over 70 works where he published his discoveries and studies related to different areas of science from geography, botany, astronomy, economy, and even languages and archaeological sites of the different places he visited. The man was a machine, and needless to say, a total hero of mine. In the first volume of the political essay of the Kingdom of New Spain, Humboldt made some interesting annotations and comparisons of bread consumption per capita between Mexico City and Paris, which at the time was still viewed as the epicenter of scientific progress in Europe. Humboldt wrote, In Mexico, bread consumption matches to that of any European city. He calculated that in Mexico, the annual consumption of bread per capita was a total of 363 pounds, which is 185 kilos. And by comparison, Paris uh, had an approximate annual consumption of bread per capita of 377 pounds or 171 kilos, meaning that in Humboldt's very European mind, the high consumption of bread in the New World was a clear sign of sophistication. And surely, any city in the world that ate almost as much bread as Parisians could comfortably claim to be very civilized. Now, I told you about the organization of the workforce inside bakeries. But there were other types of groups of which bakers were a part of, and they not only served the purpose of keeping them in line. Giles in colonial Mexico were very much like their counterparts in Europe. These societies organized and gave cohesion and visibility to the people who, like bakers, were the life and blood of the food systems of the time. But since religion, specifically Catholicism, was a ruling key element of colonial life, the religious counterparts of Giles were groups known as cofradías, or brotherhoods, and allowed people to participate in events as members of both Giles and cofradías. And that gave them prestige and recognition, in other words, cultural capital. The Cofradía de Panaderos, or Brotherhood of Bakers, used to take part in religious celebrations and public processions, wearing distinctive clothing items such as capes and hats, and also carrying badges and banners. 
The 19th century was a particularly crucial period for Mexico for many reasons. By the time the War of Independence ended in 1821, well, the world was a very different place. And after some political experimentation, we finally became a republic in 1823. And understandably, it took a few more years to slowly begin the shaping of a new identity one that had huge European aspirations, certainly not Spanish, but instead French, as such were the desperate, well, aspirations of the white criollo upper classes. By the end of the 1890s and throughout the 1900s, Mexican politicians and liberals had their eyes fixed on becoming a modern, educated and civilized society. Cities were built and renewed copying French neoclassic styles. Middle and upper classes dressed, danced and dreamed European fantasies. New cafes and restaurants became increasingly important spaces for the new practices of sociability and conviviality. And once more, what people ate defined who they were. So drinking coffee while enjoying pastries, cakes, sponges and buns became very fashionable at affluent metropolis like the city of Mexico and Puebla where French, Austrian and even Swiss bakeries and their bakers delighted people with their delicious creations that inevitably also became adopted by the popular taste. Once Mexican bakers started well, making their own versions of venoiseries like croissants, pan au raisin, custard field empanadas, brioche buns, Danish pastries and shoe buns, among many other that are still unmissable treats in our bakeries. And as you can see, there is no doubt that in a few centuries, bread in its many forms became a staple in our diets, especially in regions like Puebla. And you might be wondering, well, what became of those traditions? Did they change? Did they die off? How do they look like today? Well, I will tell you that and also what happened next for me when I decided to step out of the archives and into a bakery. But before that, let's go for a tiny little break. Pase Chipotle podcast is the audible companion of my editorial project, which includes themed books that contain carefully researched recipes to prepare traditional dishes presented alongside their amazing and rich cultural history. The titles available are Mexican Fiestas, Mexican Street Food, Mexican Chocolate and Mexican Market Food. These ebooks will take you on a journey discovering the wonderful world of Mexican gastronomy. To know more about them and start the making of your own family traditions, go to pasachipotle.com forward slash publications or click the link on the notes of this episode. Go to pasachipotle.com forward slash publications and get ready to cook, learn and enjoy Mexican food like you've never imagined. We seldom get the chance to put a face on the anonymous heroes who made our modern life so simple. It is actually sad that we are so familiar with celebrity cooks from the telly, but we don't know the name of the baker who wakes up every day at dawn to make sure we get bread on our tables. I decided to try and get as close as possible to classic and traditional forms of baking in my city. And luckily for me, there are still many surviving bakeries in the historical areas of the old colonial neighborhoods. There is one in particular that I really love, and that is the little oven of San Francisco, or Ornito de Pan de San Francisco. I remember clearly the first time I walked into the bakery and I saw Don Roberto Vélez, who is a master baker and head of the family-run operation, and kindly asked if I could come in for a week or so and interview them and have a go at trying some recipes and learn from them. 
I explained to him that archives were not enough for me to fully understand how these traditions were carried to this day, and I wanted to experience and document the life of a traditional bakery. Without missing a beat, loading trays and popping them in the oven, he simply told me to come back next day, bring an apron and cover my hair. And that was it. Next thing I know, I spent the next few months going almost every day in the evenings, just as the last shift had ended and the pastry baker came in. San Francisco's Little Bakery has been part of the Vélez family for almost 60 years. And a normal working day starts at 3 a.m., when all the dough is prepared. And from this hour until around 7 p.m., young and old siblings, nephews, aunties, uncles come and go, taking shifts and helping with all sorts of tasks such as kneading, shaping breads, baking, delivering and cleaning. Laughter and good humor is all the hard work that goes in there. And believe me, this is a tough craft. The very presence of the bakery in a historical area that has been heavily intervened and gentrified is in itself an astonishing thing, as many old properties were torn down to create a shopping mall and a convention center along with hotels and restaurants. In fact, the original place where the Vélez Bakery was located had to be demolished because it was a risk hazard, and that's when the nearby Church of San Francisco stepped in and they offered a space to relocate the bakery so the local community wouldn't lose it and the family wouldn't have to leave. The star of the bakery's production is a famous poblano torta, or savory bun, called torta de agua. It is a small, crusty and very flavorful bun made with very little yeast and a long fermentation process. It has a slightly acidic taste and it is our preferred bun to accompany our meals. With it, we prepare packed lunches and is perfect for mopping our plates. The dough is mixed by hand in wooden containers called artesas or kneading throws. And every day they use five sacks of flour, which is a total of 220 kilos that during the day will produce around 7,000 tortas. And the remaining dough will be enriched with different ingredients like eggs, butter and nuts to prepare an astonishing variety of pastries. By 1 p.m., which is almost lunchtime in Mexico, the oven has been working non-stop for more than seven hours. And even before walking into the bakery, you can smell the intoxicating, warm, tangy and definitely yeasty aroma of the dough and freshly baked bread that floats in the air. What I learned from my time at the bakery is that there is simply no substitute for time and good quality ingredients. The rushed methods of fast fermentation used at industrial bakeries, well, they do result in bigger and eye-catching breads and pastries. But they also have a very poor quality crumb, and they often turn into a mushy paste pretty much the same way sliced bread does. It won't surprise you to know that most industrial bakeries don't even use real ingredients like butter, but instead they use flavorings, artificial colors, preservatives, and even chemical substitutes for eggs and crazy amounts of refined sugar. Also, the standardization of recipes tends to favor trends that have little to do with local traditions. Even when comparing a concha pastry from a supermarket and that from a traditional bakery, you will notice that the flavor, density, aroma and everything <laughs> is absolutely different. It is true that some of the changes to the old recipes have responded to try to make healthier breads, like substituting the use of lard for vegetable shortening. But I never cease to be impressed by the amount of dough variations and types of pastries that can be produced at humble workshops like that of San Francisco's bakery with only a handful of ingredients and loads of skill and ingenuity. Many years ago, when I started all this research on wheat and bread production in colonial Mexico, I became increasingly obsessed with the recipes and methods of preparation because there was so little information that I found and it was so very scattered. 
As is often the case in historical research, it took me years of work going through documents and archives until I finally got some useful information about the quantities required to make a large volume of pan floreado, which is a type of bread that rich Spaniards had in colonial Puebla. And after months of experimentation, I finally came up with a recipe that seemed to best fit all the descriptions I have found. Success at last! It was an amazing feeling because I had brought back to life the smell and taste of a 500-year-old bread that led me to a path of historical baking, and I started baking ancient Roman bread, Middle Eastern flatbreads topped with spices, Victorian potato loaves, and many other recipes with which I decided at some point to run my own pop-up micro-bakery. And it was a lot of fun, a lot of work, and a wonderful experience. Even more so because I decided to use one of those historical bread stamps which I found and made a stencil with which I decorated my bloomers or pan floreado with a mix of powdered cocoa and ancho chile. And needless to say, they were the best sellers of my micro bakery and I have served this recipe many times over the years at private dinners, supper clubs and public talks. And now some final thoughts to close down this episode. This brief overview of the history of bread in Mexico shows us how important certain foods can become in our cultures. And indeed, we may have forgotten the names of the hundreds of thousands of people who many years before us worked, dreamed and hoped to be able to secure reliable sources of food and provide security for their offspring. What became imprinted in the fabric of our cultures is the fact that our identities are largely defined by what we eat and why we eat it. Our need to create and project meanings, functions and ideas on every single thing we do extends to every aspect of our lives, including, of course, food. Mexican breads, pastries, cakes and treats are a bounty of flavors, stories, recipes and traditions that I hope to continue exploring in future episodes. Thank you for listening. This episode was researched, presented and produced by me, Rocío Carvajal. It won't come as a surprise to you by now, of course, that I have uh, included a visit to this amazing little bakery in my full tour, Eat, Drink and Discover Puebla, which I offer on Airbnb. And if you want to know more about this amazing experience, well, you can look it up on Airbnb or click on the link that I left for you in the description of this episode. There's also a link to my ebooks in which you can find several delicious recipes to make savory breads and Mexican pastries. In the meantime, you can connect with me on social media, Instagram or Twitter, sign up to my free newsletter or send me an email to hello at pasdechipotle.com. Well, that's it for me today. Take care. Until the next time. <laughs>